0: There's a cost and our cost system and our food chain is fundamentally broken. Uh, The
1: likes of Tesco's, it's rumoured to be that their energy costs are going to be one billion.
2: There is an enormous national food crisis um, and it's not about people's inability to cook, it's about their inability to turn the lights on. There is no money to purchase food.
3: You know, How do we get people to appreciate the value of fresh produce? Hi, it's
1: tomato ketchup. Uh, their bottle has increased in price by 50% in the last 18 months. None of your growers have seen that.
4: There are there are people in this country that are hungry and that don't have access to food. And how can government policy not take that seriously?
3: You know, successively over the past 10 years, we've eroded the value of food. So what is the future of British agriculture?
5: It has to be environmentally sustainable. We cannot forget that this earth is what we're leaving for our children. We can't completely wreck it, and then expect them to be able to feed themselves going forward.
3: So there's got to be a reset in the way in which we think about food and the way in which we value food. Is
1: Now that we know the issues, is how can we collaborate? How can we create the solutions through this, uh, this platform of having you all on board? How do we fix this? Hello everyone, my name is Max McGillivray and welcome to the Circle of Leaders, hosted by Beansort Global uh, and kindly hosted at Class UK headquarters. The Circle of Leaders is an initiative created by our Beansort Global team. If you're not aware of us, we support, educate and promote the UK in international agricultural and fresh food sectors to help them thrive and grow faster. Watch us, follow us, engage with us and grow with us. Over the last two years, we as an organization have hosted some 250 online broadcasts from all over the world streaming with the likes of the United Nations, to the AHDB, to British growers and numerous industry experts um, from all of our sectors. We're now moving more to face to face filming work and recently returned from the IFPA International Fresh Produce Association Global Produce and Floral Show in the States, where we conducted several high level video interviews. We also conducted video interviews at the recent and brilliant National Fruit Show in Kent. We have filming trips under our belt with the likes of the excellent Fresh Pact initiative and Blue Skies and Waitrose in Ghana. And in 2023, we have more filming trips planned for West Africa, South Africa, and the USA. So the Circle of Leaders broadcast. simply put, we want to create the conversation and not be part of the conversation. To achieve that, we need to attract key industry experts who know the issues and collectively have the solutions and place them in a unique environment such as the one that we have created today. This sector that we all love and are so passionate about has had so many difficulties thrown at us in recent years. Brexit, elections, pandemics, droughts, a perceived ineffective and distracted government, soaring energy prices, I could go on. But as a senior level fresh produce buyer from a major South African retailer stated to to us recently on an international broadcast, Max, never waste a crisis. There's always a positive to be had. That last key word that has come out time and time again with our broadcasting interviews, and as we've been setting up today, is this key phrase of collaboration. We wanted to place some of the UK's leading industry experts in an environment where they can inform, debate, and create solutions and create collaborations to the issues of the day that will be of direct benefit to you all. Hence why we have looked to create the circle of leaders. We're going to introduce you to our panelists shortly, but we need to thank our key partners for making this unique broadcast happen. Firstly, the Innovation Agritech Group, Jazz Singh. We have honored to have us with here, uh, with us today. Agri-Epi, we've been honored to have Dr. Trish Toop with us, HDB Chairman, Nicholas Sapphire. MDS, if you're not aware of MDS, they're the best management training system in agriculture within the fresh sectors. Red Fox Executive Selection, leading consultancy business in agriculture and fresh produce. Blue Skies, a leading fresh produce business with a collective mix of sites all over, the, uh, all over the globe. Garden Agritech, if you're looking for AI within the vertical farming or the protected crop sector, you need to be speaking to Garden. And lastly, uh, Maynard's, Maynard House, We've been represented here by Class, a global brand, but we also wanted to bring in a local producer from Suffolk, so that our panelists could enjoy some of the great apple juice that they uh, they present. And so, just coming back to Class again, we just want to emphasise um, how special it is to be um, here today. Unfortunately, we um, can't have Trevor Tyrrell, who's the vice president for Western Europe for Class, here today, but he wanted to, me to pose some questions to our panelists. So we, behind us, we've got a Class Lexian. This is actually the um, the smaller. Um, combine to its big brother, the 8900 T, and that is a mighty machine. So, panel, I'm just going to ask you some questions. In one day of harvesting a Class Lexion 8900 T. let's start with Jack, because we know you like Guinness. So, Jack, pints of Guinness. How many pints of Guinness do you think that that combine could uh, produce in one day's production, that Class Lexion? I'm going to give it, make it easy for you. I'm going to give you multiple choice. Is it half a million or one million or three million pints of Guinness could that combine produce in a day? I'm
3: gonna go for a million, Max.
1: Incorrect, three million. Three million. Sarah, do you like Green King IPA? Yes. So we've got honored to have Green King uh, just down the road in Barry St. Edmunds and they're famous for the IPA. So how many uh, days or weeks do you think that combine could produce uh, to keep that production facility in Barry St. Edmunds going? I'm gonna give you multiple choice again. For a day, two days or a week? Two days. A week. So, again, we're just, just trying to get this uh, connection between the, the fascinating machinery that we, we have here and what it does for us as a, as, a, as a nation. So, come on, Andy, how many standard 400 grams of loaves of bread would that make? Would that machine make 50,000, quarter of a million, or two million? Let
6: me go for the middle, the
1: quarter of a million. Two million <laughs> loaves of bread. <laughs> Nicholas, I think you like Coleman's mustard. How many jars of Coleman's mustard would that combine produce in a, in a day? Three million jars. 50,000 jars or a quarter of a million jars? Quarter
7: of a million.
1: Three million jars. Thomas, how many bottles of extra virgin rapeseed oil would it create, 10,000, 150,000 or 75,000? I'm gonna go for 75,000. 150,000, is is anyone gonna, Trish, you're gonna get this right for me. How many many eggs, how many eggs, the the wheat that it's producing, how many eggs could that combine produce once it's gone through the system? Half a million, one million or five million? Five million. Five million, A, so you have got it, correct. Jazz, how many bowls of porridge for strapping Scotsman would it produce? 50,000, 300,000, or seven million?
0: Based on the averages of always being the highest number, I'm gonna go for the top yes, seven million.
1: You, you've read me well. Or as uh, Trevor says, uh, so it's 7, seven million bowls of porridge it would produce. Or as uh, Trevor tells me, 10 million of the little packets of Quaker's oats for lightweights like you and me, Max. So thank you to that, Trevor. So let's get some um, into the, this, this panel discussion. Um, Everyone, could you just uh, give me a show of hands if you've been in this industry for over 10 years? Okay, give me a show of hands if you've been in this industry for over five years. Okay, Thomas, you didn't put your hand up for either. Why have we invited you onto the Circle of Leaders, please?
8: Um, So my my background is a, is a farmer from Cornwall, but I uh, last year was the president of Harper Adams Student Union. And so Harper Adams is obviously quite well-known as being leading in institution for agri- agriculture and land-based studies. And so I was fortunate enough to represent those um, all of those students as their um, student Union President. I've also been a National Youth Forum Chairman for the National Federation of Young Farmers. Um, so I feel like I've got a very good understanding of what the um, younger generation of the industry are, are looking for and what we are thinking about.
1: Um, this is another reason why we were very keen to bring uh, Thomas on, that we've all sat on panels which have got a certain age demographic. Um, Thomas and his peers are the future and we were very keen to, to bring him on and he became highly recommended from the likes of Harper Adams and also uh, Fists German. Germans. So it's great, great to have you on Thomas. Jazz, why have we invited you onto the circle of leaders, please?
0: I believe we're leading the forefront of vertical farming here in the UK and we feel that the technology um, that we're working on has a real place with food security.
1: And Jazz, tell us about your recent launch, which was a pleasure to be at. You had nearly a hundred people at that. Just wax lyrical about your launch, please.
0: Uh, we launched our latest innovation of our technology called the GrowFrame 360, which is a modular and scalable system for the vertical farming uh, space.
1: Yep. and the great thing about that is it's that you're not just looking on a parochial basis of the UK you're also looking to deploy that technology that you've created with your team on an international basis
0: Correct we're going out into the US and building up 20 up to 20 farms there in the US and looking at other areas in the Middle East uh, as we speak
1: excellent so we got uh, I don't want to say Thomas the youth because you're not you're, we we're talking about this in our little groom room earlier earlier we've got the future generations coming through we've got ag tech we've got vertical farming represented by by jazz Dan why are you here?
4: Good question, Max. Why did you ask me? Um, so here representing Dyson Farming, we're a, a large scale farming business in the UK uh, and really interested in how we tackle some of the challenges that exist in UK agriculture, particularly through deploying technology.
1: Okay. And can you just give us a bit, bit more information about Dyson Farms, shape and size of it? Because you you created a bit of a flutter in the, in the sectors over the years.
4: Uh, so yes, um, Dyson Farming has existed for 11 years. Um, 35,000 acre farming business, um, largely in cereals, but also spread across fresh produce uh, and also livestock.
1: Okay, and can you just tell us about your greenhouse? Your, your colleagues Steve and Angel would be disappointed if we didn't give that a, a big uh, a big positive push.
4: So we also opened a, a glass house just over a year ago uh, and so we're also growing strawberries. Yeah.
1: Uh, on, on the basis that's uh, you're nearly there, being able to grow them on a 12-month basis?
4: Uh, yes so it's, we, we can certainly go through most of the winters, so which is groundbreaking there's, there's still a bit more to do. But.
1: Yep. I, I, again, that, there's that technology that's come, coming through at the forefront that we'll probably discuss. Trish, why are you
0: here?
5: Um, I'm here because I work for Aberty Center and we help accelerate Agritech um, UK and globally. So really looking at the forefront and how we can link the real challenges on farm with the excellent tech producers that we have so they fully understand what's needed and how to get there faster.
1: Okay. Yeah. And are you and your colleagues positive about this future, about the sector that we're in?
5: Absolutely. We wouldn't be in it if we weren't. Okay. Um, you know, it's... Farming and agritech is probably the new aerospace. It's where the really exciting innovation is being developed. We're drawing the best... Technology from all of the other sectors. Yep. So, um, I basically have the most exciting days at work because the tech that we've got and that's being developed is just groundbreaking and yeah. awesome.
1: And it's almost like we need to be somewhere where there's groundbreaking technology at every corner to to see to marvel at.
5: Yeah, yeah, this is it. I mean, this stuff is absolutely phenomenal. As an, and coming from an automotive engineering background, um, it just makes me excited to see it at this scale. But it's not the only scale that we're looking at. We're looking at the really small stuff for orchards, for the soft fruit sector. You know, there isn't going to be a one size fits all solution for what we need in AgriTech. So we have to look at all of the different areas. But actually, if they've designed a really, really smart wheel in class for something, how can we take that technology and bring it into what we need and really spin that down to do what we need in a different sector so we're not reinventing things over and over again.
1: And what's exciting with your background that you've come into the sector and you've seen the potential because we need more people like yourself coming into the sector to flourish the sector?
5: Yeah, yeah, this is it. So I don't have a farming background at all. I'm not a farmer. I'm basically a geek um, and I've come into it because... I love the technology and I love that type of thing. Um, And I've learned about farmers I go along. um, So, but I rely on the experts in the farming sector to sort of tell me how we can apply that technology. So I come of it in a slightly different brain, but that's what we need. It's interdisciplinary working and collaboration that we need to make the sector go.
1: Thank you. Nicholas, Nicholas Safar, why are you here today at the Circle of Leaders, please?
5: Well,
7: Max, you talked about collaboration. HDB is, is a levy-based body, which represents um, agriculture, farmers and processors. And its job is to fill in the gaps where market failure exists. and bring the industry together. So we, we really cover the area between policy and delivery, um, and and also the uptake of new technologies. But recognizing that a lot of levy payers are still going to carry on doing what they've done in the past. And we have to try and bring them along. Into what is going to be a very difficult new world,
1: and again, that's why we need to be associated. Why, why we need to have the relationship with the AHDB to gain that information, to gain to gain to gain that power to, to progress forward. Yeah, you know, I,
7: I, I guess I guess you could really classify us as, as the glue that comes between that? the high tech, yep. and government policy and the basic farming, and and trying to find ways of bringing that all together. Yep. And, and of course, the big problem is you've got you've got leadership. Your point, you've got uh, progressive farmers who are going way ahead and carrying on and picking up all this stuff. But you've got a very large number of farmers in this country who are, who are not there yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, if reason. you look at the 44,000 farmers who have less than 100 acres. Yeah. And, they, and they have to be developed, they have to be helped. So yep. that's that's the that's the conundrum that's the difficult area that we're
1: in. yeah but I remember just pre-brexit if I'm allowed to use the b word I, I had a senior land agent in my office stating that he was very excited about brexit because that would make the 40 percent of uneconomic farmers redundant and uh, he represented the 60 percent um, and that they would be in a, in a strong position I don't think we've seen that but There's,
7: you're going to come on to this but it's a really interesting issue history tells us that's not what happens in British farming what you actually get and what you've had all along is that you've got the large progressive farmers, or even the medium-sized progressive farmers, coping. They change, they adapt, they pick up new technologies. You have a lot of small farmers who are lifestyle farmers who will survive. Yeah. They'll carry on doing what they've done because somebody else will bring in an income from somewhere to them to survive. Yep. The real problem is that extremely large number of middle-sized farmers who often are overcapitalized, overborrowed, over who are not actually technically advanced, and they are not going to be able to cope. And, and our biggest role, I think, I, I mean, for all of us, if we talk about collaboration, is not about the progressives. We can help the progressives. Yeah. It's that whole middle ground. We've got to shift it yeah. into a different culture.
1: Yeah, and the, and the classic example, the, the uh, technology that's now arrived with automatic um, uh, milkers, d- dairy milkers, the biggest problem that uh, those companies have found is that farmers enjoy milking and won't give up the milking, so they won't adopt the milkers. Just mad Andy. It was very interesting that when i asked you have you been in the industry 10 years five years you're a bit hesitant to think for a second is it it like you're a new boy tell us tell us tell us
6: about yourself and tell us why you're here for the circle of leaders please i think i'm here because of climate change really everything in my working career has been focused on climate change which is very relevant now obviously this week with cop 27 happening and uh six or so years ago probably i started to think about horticulture and I was pretty shocked when visiting greenhouses about the gas being burnt and wanted to do something different. So uh, I've developed a couple of large projects, large greenhouses in the UK, one in Barry snowmans one in Norwich, which take heat from sewage works and use an electric heating system instead of burning fossil fuels. Um, And I'm looking to do more interesting, innovative projects, which are low carbon as we go.
1: Okay. And what attracted you to horticulture? I'm slightly leading the witness, but did you see it that it was a sector that was
6: unsophisticated and that with your skill set and that of your colleagues, you could actually bring benefit to it? I think you've put it very well. And I thought it was a really fascinating space. I went into my first greenhouse. I was like, oh, this is just amazing. The amount of produce, yield per metre squared, the lack of spraying. I I was totally blown away by all the environmental benefits. But then I wasn't so happy about the, um, the fossil fuel side of things. So... I think we've made strides, but it's a difficult environment now for energy for greenhouses. You know, the key inputs you need are light, heat, CO2, and um, yeah, it's a difficult environment now for horticulture going forward in that. Thank you. And
1: we'll come on to that. Sarah, Sarah Colcott, Why are you here at the Circle of Leaders?
2: Um, because I'm the new CEO of City Harvest London, so we are the sustainable solution to surplus food.
1: Okay. and. And give, give, give us a bit more information. We, we're aware of City, City Harvest, but just we want the elevator pitch. That's what we want.
2: Um, so City Harvest will take food from farms, from retailers, from distributors, and we bring it to one of our two depots, but, but primarily into Acton. And we are sharing 1.2 million meals worth of food every month across Greater London, 29 boroughs. And um, are, I have a staff of 62 that make this happen. We have a fleet of 30 vans. Um, everybody who de- donates either money, because obviously it's quite expensive, though our cost per meal is currently at 25 pence per meal we don't charge anybody either to collect their surplus nor to deliver the food to their beneficiaries Um, so our cost to ourselves is 25 pence per meal so we have some very important donors Um, they have a carbon statement and greenhouse gas statement from us and those that give us food we then supply back to them a statement about the carbon and greenhouse gas capture that's um, yeah because the food hasn't gone to ad which is a cost or it hasn't gone to landfill which has a massive environmental cost
1: okay and what's the future of city harvest where do you want this to be five years ten years out
2: Um, Well, demand um, at the moment is far in excess of of what we can currently deliver. So we have a massive fundraising run at the moment. Um, Obviously, hunger in holidays, hunger at Christmas. Um, So we're looking to expand our operation quite um, quite rapidly. I have an amazing communities team. They're looking after these 375 charities, but we have an enormous waiting list. And so the drive is to expand what we do in London and then start looking into the communities close to London. So look at East Kent, looking into Essex and start expanding out. But, you know, if you go to any city, any medium sized town, anybody, frankly, the small village I live in has got people dependent on a food bank. There is an enormous national food crisis um, and it's not about people's inability to cook. It's about their inability to turn the lights on. There is no money to purchase food.
1: OK, so you're a litmus paper for the the economy in some respects.
2: Absolutely. And the demand is not changing. So within five years time, um, certainly we will be three times the size we are. We've grown five times in the last 24 months. Wow. So we're yeah. five times the size we were going into lockdown. Okay. Um, so, yeah.
1: So, that's a, yeah, so it's, it's almost like it, it's, it's, a, it's another topic. It's another broadcast. It's such a big, big, big subject. Sarah, thank you. Jack Ward, British Growers. Hello, Max. Why are you here at the Circle of Leaders?
3: So I'm here on behalf of the fresh produce industry. And the fresh produce industry, I think, is one of the least well understood bits of agriculture. Um, we're only about 160,000 hectares, but we are 20% of the output and arguably fresh produce is one area that we should be looking to expand. We currently import something like six billion pounds worth of fresh produce. Um, we export a fraction of that and uh, there should be terrific opportunity to increase um, our output of fresh produce. Um, it's sort of hugely important in terms of diet and health and you know that's one of our missions you know, ahead is to see how we can do that. Yeah,
1: and it, it must be very difficult for yourself and the growers that you represent. If you look at the, um, unfortunately the stats are showing there's been a decline of, of fresh produce sales of late. And if you look at a specific sector, say like the likes of brassicas, it's a, got a huge turnover, but the profit, profitability of it is, is very minimal. Is the answer to this, you know what I'm gonna say, is for the retailers, for the end
3: customers to pay more for, for to, to the growers? I think one of the big issues, um, one of the big challenges for agriculture is how we restore value in food and nowhere is it more important, particularly in vegetables, where you know, successively over the past 10 years we've eroded the value of food um, and to a point where there's virtually no money left for anybody in the supply chain. doesn't matter whether you're a grower or retailer, I don't think anybody is making any money anymore. And looking ahead at the issues that we've got to deal with in the future, whether it's sustainability, climate change, technology, water, that's not going to happen without investment. And in order to get some investment, we've got to get some return back down the supply chain. So there's got to be a reset in the way in which we think about food and the way in which we value food.
1: Yeah, and it seems so unfair with the likes of Heinz Tomato Ketchup. Uh, Their bottle has increased in price by 50% in the last 18 months. None of your growers have seen that.
3: No, I, I heard that this morning. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've, you've summed it up exactly. You know, how do we get people to appreciate the value of fresh produce as it is at the moment?
1: Yeah, okay, so let, let's throw, throw this um, open. I'm just gonna ask ask you all one question to, just to see what is highlighting, what is concerning you today. Thomas, I'm just gonna start with, with you because it'd be great to get your insight rather than some of the battle-weary people like myself and uh, and Jack, if that's, uh, if that's okay. Thomas, what's the biggest challenge in the industry at the moment as you see it
8: for me i think um recruitment is, is a huge huge challenge i think as a, a young person um within the industry i think the jobs are there for us to be very choosy and as an individual you know you can really choose where you're going to work who you're going to work for but then when i flip that and think of our family business at home we're really struggling to find um, people who are able to enter into the industry. One of the issues is, you know, we are down in, in Cornwall and a lot of people don't want to sort of trek down to the Southwest unless you actually come from there originally. Um, and then from like my job now with Fish German, for example, we've got about 60 vacancies within the firm because the firm is growing so rapidly because we're getting so much more work, but then we can't fill those positions because the, the, well, the workforce isn't there, but they must be somewhere because employment said it's lowest that it's been for you know almost 50 years but then where are these people, you know? So I think yeah. that is a huge challenge. And, and that so that's actually
1: slowing the growth of the company because you've got those, those vacancies. Yeah, and so we've I, got those vacancies. And I'm sure it won't with Fisher German, but it
8: could with other businesses affect their performance because everyone's getting stretched too thin. Exactly, and you know, we've got clients wanting to give us more and more work, for example, and the last thing you want to do is say no, yeah. but then you also don't want to take on that work and not be able to deliver to a standard, and yeah. then you end up losing that client potentially.
1: Yeah, okay, so recruitment, Dan.
4: Jack and Sarah articulated it very well. I think the, the biggest challenge is the value in our food. And as a country, we, we've lost our way a bit in, in the hierarchy of what's important. And the value in food also means our health and our nutrition and the environment. And if, if food is valued at an appropriate level, there is enough money to invest in how we do things differently. That really does tangibly make a difference, and that that's the biggest issue that I think we all face right now.
1: Yeah, Andy, Jazz, we've had a number of people approach us from, um, from who are looking to get into the likes of vertical farming or um, ag tech, and when they come in to this sector, they've been quite naive in that they respect they they've. They've, they've viewed the fact that they should be able to get double-digit margin returns, and they will have retailers knocking on their doors. And um, when, as uh, the lights are down, and and Jack and Sarah will know that just doesn't happen. When, with you both being relatively new entry, entries into the sector, have you been surprised as, as to how competitive it is and how margin pressured it is? And Jazz.
0: so the margin is actually very very tight. Exactly what Jack said. There's enough level of investment actually available within the ag tech space um our feeling is that we do need a good reset because the price of produce with the rising energy cri- uh, with the rising energy costs and all the other factors uh, labor costs is so extremely tight that you you know it's going to be very difficult to get double margins unless something is done fundamentally um, on how we're importing uh, and our uh, importing our food you know pretty much what jack said up to six to seven billion is what is imported so how do we how do we do a balance between supporting British farmers who want to use ag tech, the likes of vertical farming and solutions um, and support the industry?
1: Yeah, but because we haven't had any decent food inflation for, for years and something that's been discussed on our platforms for, uh, the, for, the, for the last last couple of years. Um, I drive past a Tesco superstore every morning and I look at the price of uh, fuel. Whenever it was a year ago, diesel was one, 118, it's now 182 or 184. The uh, sales of fuel have not gone down. Um, Andy, was this something that you were surprised at when you got into the sector as to th- this this margin pressure?
6: I think the energy inputs, it seems to me, especially in uh, in across lots of agriculture, but particularly greenhouses, um, it's the energy inputs, which are just so shockingly expensive and have changed, were expensive previously. And... You know, especially even vertical farming, whereby you're not taking the sunlight. For example, you've got high energy inputs in a greenhouse. You've got, you know, you're burning a fossil fuel to create those key elements you need, and you're growing in an environment which is not is a is a northern European environment uh, as opposed to growing in Spain, where you can grow in a polytunnel. Um, so, energy inputs just we, everything comes back to that seemingly.
1: Yeah, and you didn't anticipate this when you started your business, presumably. That, no, that I, I
6: suppose I'd, I don't see foresee many people expected the war in Ukraine and those impacts that have continued. But um, I think lots of people, obviously, in lots of industries, the larger players were hedged against gas um, prices. And but some people caught uh, very much unaware and were just about to sign things. I can't remember the firm, but uh, I read some shocking, uh, you know, there's some people who are caught out very badly by this.
1: Yeah, we've got some greenhouse growers who Yearly costs were £400,000 a year, went yep. up to £14 million, And it, it's just uneconomic to to, to grow yeah. that glass. It, it makes more sense to grow bungalows yep. than, than it does or glass. Or sell
6: the contracts and not grow anything, which is even more tragic. You hear those are the stories where they might have had a contract for gas, but they thought, well, actually, look, I'll just make more money selling the contracts for the gas and growing something. Yeah. So pretty shocking scenarios that came about as a result of that. Andy, thank
1: you. Nicholas, with your HDB Chairman, hat on. You, you are going to use expression I, again. I use with Sarah. You are the litmus paper. You sit um, within that environment of HDB, and you're hearing all these soundings. What, what's the biggest issue that you're feeling, you're seeing within the HDB and your community?
7: Well, first of all, it's not one industry. I mean, if you, the difference between integrated pork production and horticulture is enormous, and 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 the tensions in terms of cereal production and input prices is totally different from the problem of, let's say, potato growing. Um, but, but that aside from, let me, let me just go back for a second, Max. Um, when I came into the industry, you asked about who's been here for 10 years. I've been here a lot longer than that. Um, when I came into the industry, we spent 27% of our disposable income on food and drink. We are now at 11%, right? Now, we have a, an affordable food problem, which is a social problem. It isn't a food price problem. We actually have a social problem with people who cannot afford food. But for the rest, food has become far too cheap. And it has been a culture that has actually been developing since 1954, end of, end of uh, um, rationing. And, and we now have the second cheapest food in the, in the Western world, after America. Now, that, that, that is a real problem. And, and if you looked at it 10 years ago, you would have said, it's all about redistribution of margin. It's about who's making the margin, the farmers are not making the margin, that's the problem. That's not true today. The problem today is nobody's making the margin. So so you've got several issues. One is, how do you actually create a, a structure in food costs to consumers that is sustainable and works? I would argue that we will see an uplift which is not just current, it will be maintained to a certain extent, but it's been accompanied by enormous increase in costs. And that will continue for a long time yet. So so don't look to that to make a big margin. I think that if you compare us with other countries, there are crops where we are actually way behind. On milk, we tend to be 2p per litre behind Europe, the average, right? Why is that? Partly because we don't export. So we actually only have one set of customers. And they have developed, on milk, they've developed a liquid milk business, which is highly price competitive. We are bad on product innovation, we're bad on export, so that's a problem. If you take cereals, well, what are we producing? We're essentially producing feed wheat. And feed wheat is totally dependent on market, global market values, and we are not always in the best place to be growing cereals. So there are people growing 10 tons and there are people growing four tons. So you can see that there are enormous tensions within the industry that we will fail if we think of it as just, one set of problems for one total industry. It's labour. It's cost of food. It's affordable cost of food. It's it's a lack of public policy around where we're we going. It's a lack of innovation. It's a lack of, of of investment. It's all of those things. It's very complex, and I think we fail ourselves if we think it can be just one silver bullet that's going to solve it.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's fascinating what you stated about uh, is. It's- been a fundamental change since the fifties. I'm slightly leading the witness here, but do you think the bigger companies, there's, there's a view that there's the, the 10 major multinationals globally um, have been able to construct this food system. That's to their benefit that they've been able to cre- be able, they've been able to create the branded products such as, such as the Heinz tomato ketchup created a brand and they can use that. They can leverage that to get what they want from the retailers. Whilst we, the, the farm in the fresh produce sector, we've been poor sellers. And that's why we've been pushed into the corner whilst these big multinationals. And just, just to give you an example, example of that. Nicholas, at City Food Lecture, I think you were there, Jack, mm-hmm. a few years ago, there was the, the, the VP of PepsiCo um, and Chris White of um, Eurofruit Magazine asked the question in the Q&A, when is PepsiCo going to start investing in, in bananas? Uh, and this individual retorted very quickly, when you show me how to make money out of bananas, we'll invest in bananas. And bananas is obviously a good but bad example because it's a commodity product. But do you think there are external forces being the likes of those multinationals and, and government that aren't assisting our sectors? Well,
7: for sure, for sure. The brands make the margin, and you can see that in alternatives to milk. Why? Why are you actually seeing such a growth in alternatives to milk? Partly because there is a there is a consumer demand, but partly because the brands have got the margin. The brands are pushing it, whereas the liquid milk business hasn't. So, so it's about brands. That's true, but it's also about Britain. So, I I I I've farmed all over the world. I've farmed in South America, in South Africa, in Europe, and I've I've, I've actually just exited my own investment in in Spain. We make. Totally different margins, totally different margins to farming in Britain. And you have to ask yourself why. And the reason is because the world is our market. And and if you will not get the price, then you go somewhere else. And I think that's, that's part of the British problem that we've actually, quite understandably, post the Second World War, we have focused on supplying British supermarkets who until the 1990s were benign who actually would pay high prices for high-quality product because they needed it to fill the shelves. They then started actually cannibalizing each other because they had too many shops, because they were starting to copy each other. So what you actually then have was competition between them. That then translated into low prices. And that's why we have a low-priced economy and, and why actually there is no easy answer to that because you can't look to the retailers and say, you guys have got it wrong because they're not making the margin either now. So it really requires a complete shift in culture, different opinion, and also, to be honest, I think that many British farmers have not actually advanced. We were talking before about Glasshouse. You know, the Dutch, the Belgians are far better at Glasshouse with respect to to Dyson, who I think are very good, and one or two others like Planet planet Earth. But but I think that if you look at the Dutch, if you look at the Belgians, specialists in Glasshouse doing a superb job and getting the investment, but they've got a global market. Yes,
1: because just have you created a brand?
4: Yes.
1: Carry on. That
3: wasn't what I was going to
4: say, but um, I think 1954 was a great point because end of rationing. And so the the other thing that's different in the marketplace is in 1954, it took one farmer to feed 10 people. So 10% of the UK population was in some way involved in primary agriculture. Today, one farmer feeds 100 people in the UK. So 1% of the UK population is involved in primary agriculture. So when you talk about the value of food, that's a shift that's happened over 70 years where people are further removed from from food. And I agree with everything you said on on, uh, retailers and supermarkets and that they've been part of that transition, allowing us to have fresh food very, very easily in very slick supply chains all across the country. But that connection, that fundamental value is because people are now too far removed from it. Food comes from Tesco, or Sainsbury's or Aldi, it doesn't come from a farm and that, that's a, another difference internationally where people do care about uh, local production or at least the provenance, there, there's some element of provenance. And so we have become faceless as a, a food system in this country and that is something that, that needs addressing.
1: Yeah. yeah. Six out of 10 children do not know where fresh produce comes from. Jack, same, same question, Question, but there, there seems to be a, a current theme coming here. What, what what do you feel are the biggest challenges in the sector and in the industry at the moment?
3: Yeah, you know, it comes back to the point I made earlier, it's about value of food Um, and the focus, you know, certainly for the past 10 years, if not longer, has all all been about buying for less. You know, it's all about who can um, buy for less so they can pass on that cheapness. Uh, And we haven't done a very good job of selling for more. You know, Um, if you compare what we do with the French, if you go into a French supermarket, Food in France is a lot more expensive. So why is that? Why have they managed to retain value in their food Um, and we haven't? And I think, you know, one of the issues is, you know, our food system just makes it accessible. If you go into a retailer at the moment, they do a fantastic job in terms of um, choice But it's just there. There's no information about it. There's no explanation about it. There's no differentiation of product. There's nothing there to enhance the value. It's just food. Help yourself at a very, very low price. And we've just done nothing um, to explain to people you know, the importance of food, the differences between the food, how food helps them in their health. You know, supposing it's not surprising that they've just treated it like a commodity product and we've all become commodity producers. Yeah. And if uh, there's a big Sainsbury's
1: down the road. It has 32,000 different lines of, of product. Do we really need 32,000 different lines? And they've even got to the point now of the turning down the lights in the fruit and veg element, presumably to save the costs. Uh, the likes of Tesco's, it's rumored to be that their energy costs are gonna be 1 billion um, over, over the next calendar year, and they are definitely going to be passing that on to the supplier sarah are you concerned about this this uh, this area of consumption of fresh fresh produce because there has there has been some great initiatives within especially the fruit sector to promote promote fruits and what what are your views
2: um and obviously you know, with my, with my new role it's about accessibility um, to, to fresh produce um, but yeah you know, it, it's the we have the fruit for schools program but of course you grow out of that one really quickly and there's nothing sort of taking you through in those really critical teenage years the, the access to fruit and vegetables and the understanding about that you know, the functional nature of a really healthy diet and what that will do for you so that's there's the ed- educational piece but it's also you know, that disparity in wealth that we've got You know, the growers don't get the return no one's making money out of it yet we still have an ever-increasing portion of the population that just can't
1: access produce. Yeah. Then you have the issue of uh, the the National Health Service. There's whatever the figures are of the likes of diabetes because of the bad health health eating of people, uh, that if that is not stopped or paused, it's going to be a calamitous crash for the National Health Service and the the economy as a a whole.
2: So you look at other nations who've been reorganising the departments within their government. And so they have the Ministry of the Economy. And underneath the Ministry of Economy comes health and farming, because they see that as being an entire sort of complete circle because your economy retur- depends on healthy people who are fed well, that you're not dependent on other nations to produce your food. And so you have that beneficial cycle that you're better off physically, fi- financially, environmentally, Socially, you know, and and that's the the challenge we've mentioned twice already around the table about the challenges of disconnect on policy and how we actually manage things. In in farming, we have that big disconnect in policy. Um, And with City Harvest, we see a big disconnect in policy. If you get free school meals as a primary school child, you don't get them as a secondary school child, but you're still going to be hungry. Yeah, and they're all hungry in the holidays.
1: Yep, and then you have uh, secondary kids uh, wandering around with slices of pizza and uh, cans of Red Bull, um, and we all know what uh, what that's happens. It's the there.
2: most cheap, accessible maximum number of calories. Yep, and it's calorific intake that's that's accessible to them.
1: Yep, and 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 uh, the likes of vapes. My kids tell me that uh, the, the uh, whole vape industry is geared towards that age group to take them through to the, to the next level. Trish, ag- Agriepi, what what are the major issues that you're seeing for, for yourself and your colleagues?
5: Um, It's how to make our food chain sustainable. Um, And Sarah hit on the point. So it's the three pillars of sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's got to be economically sustainable. Otherwise, why should people be involved in that food chain? Why should we make um, tech to go into the food chain if it's not economically? Um, It has to be environmentally sustainable. We cannot forget that this earth is what we're leaving for our children. We can't completely wreck it and then expect them to be able to feed themselves going forward. But social sustainability as well. So we put a post up last week about a robot in a vineyard and somebody went, oh, well, what about all the jobs you're taking? Well, if we could get people to feed them, to fill those jobs, we probably wouldn't need that robot, you know, going back to what Thomas was saying. So for us, it's sort of how do we bring those three elements (laughs) through and how can we then sort of bring this precision technology in to help um, people in that food chain to basically do more with less. So can we use less inputs on the fields to grow our crops? can we do that with less people because we can't employ them and can we do that so actually we're making that more economically viable so let's look at um, how we're selling and and, um, providing that tech onto farms so you know people haven't maybe got the bank balances to go out and and buy that sort of new robot so actually can we make this a service model so for us Um, it's really all about sustainability and that's my background and that's my absolute passion for what i bring to this so it's it's how do we do that so that's our biggest challenge is sort of is helping those companies understand what that means to the agritech sector and to all of the different players in it because the stakeholders are absolutely so different um you know you know and the different sectors within you know we talk about agritech and the food chain but it's it's vastly different from one end to the other. Yeah. So it's that and sort of trying to play into that and sort of work out how we can help all of those pillars. But it all comes under the one word sustainability, which means everything and nothing to different people.
7: Nicholas. Okay. Yeah, I think traditionally we would have looked to government and said, here's the big problem, yeah. solve it. Yeah? Government won't solve it. This, this government, not just this particular color of government, this government Cannot solve it. It has, hasn't got the cash. It hasn't got the will. I think we mustn't forget that if we are looking for for the sort of advances you're talking about, if we're looking around agriculture, in every part of agriculture we can find extreme examples of good practice. Yeah, I mean what you're doing on on, on strawberries, for example, fantastic if you take some of the, the rotational work that's being done on, on arable farming, you know, seven-year rotations, bringing, bringing animals back into fields, being, building up organic matter, there is some fantastic work going on on the, on the fens in terms of um, um, the way we can actually deal with peat. So, so I think we've got examples around the country of really good practice. The problem we've got is that Given the decline over the next five years in terms of direct farm payments, we either sit here and wait for the problem to be a commercial and economic problem for a lot of farmers, particularly this middle ground of farmers. Either we wait for that, or we get out to them and we we do something about helping them to adopt new practice and new development, and and that it's not about looking to other people to solve the problems anymore. This is the big problem. We we traditionally said we've got a problem on farming. Government come to our help. And that isn't going to be the solution. We have to find ways of actually helping British farming find its own solutions. Um, and, and I think that that's a really interesting and, and great opportunity. Yeah,
4: The challenge that we have versus other countries is the, the balance of where policy overlaps with practical application and university and academic study. And so we're not particularly good at uh, connecting all of those together to, you know, exactly the point you raised earlier, the, the innovation that standardised higher yields across the entire country should be something that is driven by policy, is deployed by the incredibly talented academics we have in the country. And it's then used on farm in the real world, and that if you can't connect the three, and policies lacking, and I, I agree with you, the government doesn't have the money or the wherewithal, but they do set the policy, and so if if you can't get that engagement to get some movement in policy, I'm not sure we can do it ourselves.
7: A very interesting small part of the white paper, the DEFRA white paper, that talks about what works.
4: Um,
7: now, now if you look at the future, I mean, I think that that is a, a, a policy statement by government, which they don't really have the wherewithal to fund it, but that's a different issue which directs us towards collaboration. And that's, you're quite right, Dan, I think that's the big opportunity we have. How do you actually do pre-competitive collaboration where where you can actually start bringing the best and then use that to disseminate to other people to pick it up? And I think that's probably the biggest challenge we have over the next few years. Thomas,
1: government, thumbs up, thumbs down, and and not the particular government we have at the moment, but government
8: per se. We've got two different views here. What's your view? I think it's one of the ones that, it's one of those things that they actually need time to get something in place. I think people want answers yesterday from government, but you've got, you know, you've got to give them time. I think they need to be engaging with organisations such as National Federation of Young Farmers more. You know, I know the DEFRA minister met with them the other day. But that's one meeting. But you know that needs to be happening more regularly because the people who are um, interested in change and have these new innovative ideas, a lot of the time, are sort of on the the younger generation side, and they need help getting their voice out there. And I think you know, going through something like Young Farmers um, is is a way of doing it. You know, to help guiding the government with their way of thinking. Um, And I also think, yeah, you know, you do actually need to find a little bit of time to find your feet you know and and look at things strategically rather than just going right we just arrived now we're going to change this and then we're going to do that you know it needs to actually have a bit of a yeah plan. it's a
1: great example just go back to Nick, nicholas uh, talking about uh milk and the lights of europe when the the cereals uh, show when that got sold out to a, a french exhibition company they were very surprised that the prime minister didn't arrive to open the cereal show whenever this was two three uh four four years ago because in france it's the it's the, it's the standard thing that the that the whole um parliamentary chain from uh, f- uh, from from french politics comes out to support french agriculture but we We've never had the Prime Minister to like to see us, Jack.
3: Our expectation of government is far too high. Um, If you look, um, we're now six and a half years out of Brexit, and one of the big beneficiaries out of Brexit was supposed to be agriculture. We would be free from the CAP, we'd have a blank sheet on which to write our agricultural policy. Here we are, six and a half years later, can anybody actually define what our agricultural policy looks like? And, you know, whilst we have civil servants, they're very good at doing civil servant type stuff. But actually, it's the people sat around this table who understand the industry, who have the ideas. And I think it's it's beholden on the industry to go to government and say, you know, this is what we want to do. This is how we try and make it happen. You know, we've had a couple of examples where actually we have managed to do that. But you know, I think in the current situation, one of the real struggles we're facing at the moment is actually getting any traction from government, getting them to actually do stuff. And yeah. um, you know, I can see the next couple of years we're going to be absolutely focused on, you know, recovery of the economy. And actually pretty much a lot of the other stuff just won't
1: happen. So, so what do we say? We need Liz yeah. trust back, Liz trust back to, co- to to create another Australian trade deal. No, 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 as, as per the ramifications of it yesterday, Andy, you are, as you stated earlier, we've identified earlier, you're relatively new into the sector. How have you had a number, if it's okay to state, a number of ministerial visits yes, to your units? Have. What's your take on government?
6: I would actually just go back up a level and not just talk about agriculture, but um, it's interesting, you don't, people don't expect much from the state, and, um, and actually that's a self-reinforcing problem because then you don't get the best minds attracted to those government departments, et cetera, et cetera. And so I would draw your attention to some example like an iPhone. An iPhone, uh, everyone thinks Apple's very innovative, and of course they are, but when that product came out, it had touch screens, Siri, GPS. All of those do are developed by government departments, essentially, or quasi. and it was because the government had a very interventionist shaping of the economy and incentivizing certain sectors in that economy. And I just wonder whether it's the same for agriculture, horticulture, that government could take a more active shaping policy. Very and, and that's the problem, obviously, you alluded to, is that I've taken around to these ministers and I've rung up the next week to say, oh, you know, so how are you getting on with, oh, you're not there anymore. Oh, well, that's a bit unlucky. Um, so that's just a si- silly example. But, you know, the DEFRA ministers will still be there and the, the DEFRA officials will still be there. But um, I just would love to see a more um, uh, joined up thinking across all of our society, because actually you're touching a lot of societal issues here. You're talking about food costs, you're talking about energy, you're talking about And I would love to see a more joined-up, top-down approach that government were like, yeah, okay, right, we're going to spend hundreds of millions. I actually had a crazy thought that not that long ago, this is probably not the best place to voice it now in front of everybody, but it was my greenhouses, okay, the ones that developed, don't own them, don't operate them, just develop them. They do 10% of the UK's tomatoes. They don't cost that much to run in terms of millions of pounds. They're not that expensive. So I thought, well... Why on earth is there a cost of living crisis that people talk about and fresh produce being expensive? I could, we could easily—that's two fields I'm using to do 10% of the UK's tomatoes. Give me 20 fields. Let's get some government money into this. We could be sending the money. And I rang up the Trussell Trust and said, "I would love to do this. I reckon I can. I can achieve this. I can send you." And they go, "Oh, well, we don't have fresh, just fresh. We don't have cold chain distribution." But I've just heard that Sarah does. You know, and I think wow, we could do that. You know, we could, we could. So, but that's a crazy idea. So I'll I'll stop there.
1: Okay, but it comes back to that word that we started with of of collaboration. And again, that's what we're looking to achieve from this. Jazz, if you remember when we did a a collective interview with yourself and uh, and your colleague, Kate, and one of your academic partners, I was going on about the Dutch diamond that in Holland, uh, Nicholas, you, you mentioned about how um, in Holland on a horticultural perspective, like sort of greenhouse development, they're so far in advance of us. And th- there is a view that that's because of their Dutch diamond because they have got government, um, industry, and education in this virtuous circle that works so so well. And Jazz, if you remember, we talked about that at your, at your launch. Have you looked to lean on government as, as a relatively new startup who, who's, who's now looking to, to pro- progress? Is government something that's in, in, integral to your business to make it a success?
0: So we definitely need government support. Um, but going back to Nicholas's point, I think where we are constrained is that we're always thinking about the British supply chain and where we want to, you know, we want to reduce food miles. We want to be sustainable. We don't really want to export. We want to bring food closer to the consumer. Then it go back to Tricia's point about how can we be economically viable? So we want to see well, what are the supermarkets and what are the British consumers willing to pay? And it's, it's combining all of our sustainability thoughts from environment, economic, from investment and combining all that together there's a cost and our cost system and our food chain is fundamentally broke at this stage so you know we're, we're hearing all these challenges we understand what the problems are but until government does step in we're real subsidies and real support and we want to take food security seriously I don't think we're going to get out this hole anytime soon um, so you know from where we're seeing um, and you know we're quoting all around the world to look at where vertical farming and other technologies comes. So we're running different formulas of, well, their energy costs are X, their inputs are, are Y and, you know, their labor costs are X, Y, and Z. And we're seeing much more probability around the world to support British agriculture technology globally, but we can't do it on our own doorstep, which is actually wow. really frustrating for me as a business where we're having, we built this great bit of technology. We, th- we know that it works. But we can't do it on our doorstep because all the inputs are um, and these are the challenges. So short answer is yes, we do need government support and and many more angles that we need.
1: Yeah, but Dan, if it's okay to mention the likes of Dyson, Dyson in the past have looked at offshore because of the issues within within the UK?
4: Yeah, I think it's a very valid challenge that if you can be more successful abroad, why would you do it in the UK. And I think the the fundamental, we've talked a lot about kind of value and the financial implication. Sarah's point earlier: there are hungry people. There are, there are people in this country that are hungry and that don't have access to food. And how can government policy not take that seriously? How can you say that food security, it's fine, we just import from Europe. It, it all works when there are hungry people in this country and the people that are producing food don't get the right value. Yeah,
1: Going back to the point that Jack made, there's a there's a quote from Lord Heseltine, uh, ex-government uh, minister, that he says that uh, the, the problem isn't the government, it is Whitehall, it is the bureaucrats behind it. And it comes back to what uh, Andy was saying a little bit with your ministerial visits that, that you've had. It's actually the, the, the civil service that need to be educated, cajoled to help this sector. Jack?
3: Um, I think that's an easy accusation to make. I, I think I guess if you're a government minister, you're just confronted with so many conflicting views. Um, you know, you've only got to look at something like the Sustainable Farming Initiative. You know, I guess you've got people at one end saying it's got to be like this. You've got people at the other end saying it's got to be relatively simple and easy to do. And, you know, it's all a question of walking a tightrope. And you're giving advice, well, minister, if you go down this route, you're going to get that. I wouldn't go down that route, you know. And at the end of the day, they're just human beings um, trying not to make the right decision. And sometimes I think it's easier to keep kicking the can down the road yeah. than make a decision. Yeah.
1: So, so, Nicholas, I go back to my, go back to my point that I made earlier about my lovely quote. I don't know if it's politically correct, but from my uh, lovely South African buyer, that about never waste a crisis.
7: Uh, what, what, what's? I, I don't want to be an apologist for government, for yes. sure. I don't want to be an apologist for government, but but let me say this: you know, if you look, if you were if you were sitting in Defra now and you were looking at what is going to be probably a 30% demand for you to reduce your own costs. All right? That's where they're gonna come from. So lots of people are gonna disappear, the pressures on, on balancing environment with food security, with all of those things, against a history, a British history, that says, actually, we're a world trading nation, and we can import food, and we can export financial services. So if you look at the, the, the House of Commons last night, George Eustace says that this Truss's deal in Australia was a bad deal for British agriculture. It was. It was an appalling deal for British agriculture. But but the reality is, it was probably a good deal to get us into the Pacific in terms of opening up markets for financial services, for industrial goods. So so what I would like max if we, if we can just do it now is is come away from looking at government for a minute yeah you know? i mean we all will we'll all keep on bashing at government we'll keep on talking about food affordability we'll talk about farming profitability we'll talk about support and all of those things but if we if we just accept for a minute that that may be a forlorn hope correct you know? yeah could we come back for a second to to what is the future of british agriculture because because i i i can see and i am an optimist In this, I can see that there is some fabulous research development opportunity. My concern is, go back to the whole history of British agriculture. From 1780 onwards, we led on research. We led, you know, rootstocks around the world are British. Um, Breeds are British. I mean, not all, but a lot of them. Okay, and and we and we found it went elsewhere to be developed. That's also true of industry. So, so my question is, with all the work you're doing, all the work you're doing and all of the opportunity that Andy's talking about in terms of, of, of use of energy, how do we make sure that's not just ideas that are exported rather than produced in this country? How do we get British agriculture to see those opportunities and pick them up?
2: Sarah? Um, I was listening to Tim Lang last week, and I just reread his book about broken food, Britain. And you, Going back to the year, we're talking about post-war 1958 and the, the end of, uh, 1954, sorry, end of rationing. But that came from the Matthew Beveridge Report and at the point the beverage report was written, we were as unsustainable and else as unself-sufficient as we are now. And then the beverage report came in and looked at where we were in terms of global politics, where we were in terms of food security, our ability to feed our growing nation. And the results of that report is what shaped our farming community for the last 70 years. And but are we not in danger now that we're gonna have this cyclical thing where we're gonna become less productive, we'll become less self-sufficient, more, in, you know, more dependent on food that's then shipped, What's the environmental impact? And, and we're importing other people's like, poor yeah. em- environmental practices, their poor ethical employment practices. You know, it, 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 it seems that we're sort of starting that cycle again. We'll end up with the beverage report in a decade.
7: So the reason why from beverage report and then from 1974 on, we've had this, this consistent, sustainable industry without volatility is because we actually joined Europe. And because actually it was the French and the German farmers who actually have produced a nationalistic European approach to keeping things out that isn't the culture we've got now the culture we've got now is we we go for Brexit because it opens the world so I think I think it is what I'm saying is I hope you're right but I suspect you're not right I suspect we will not end up with a government policy that says self-sufficiency is absolute key and therefore we're going to actually maintain national borders in a, in a big way. We're not going to do that. You can see that from the trade deals. So so my, my concern is, if you, are, if you allow for the fact that we cannot be commodity producers against the Australians, against the New Zealanders, against the South Americans, we can't be commodity producers and survive, right? So we have to be speciality. We have to be innovative. We have to find new ways of doing things. And that means you have to actually find ways of collaborating pre-competitive collaborating, bringing progressive farmers in, bringing the progressive investors in, and then you have to say, what do you do about the rest? And that's that's different.
2: we is that policy environment for growth and innovation that was
1: created from the, the Beverage Report, that's what we're looking for, isn't it? So, so everyone, we spent the, the last um, few minutes just looking at the issues of, of the day. What I really want to now major on is now that we know the issues, is how can we collaborate? How can we create the solutions? through this uh, the, the, this platform of having you all on board how do we fix this Andy I'm just going to throw this hospital pass to you from everything that 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 you've heard and it but it's also great because you're new into into the sector with your industry experience from other areas on, on the basis that government as as Nicholas has so eloquently informed us is perhaps not the way to go to to look for help how do we get round all of these horny issues of of uh, re- recruitment energy inputs bad bad margin what's what's
6: the magic wand Andy? Oh, um, well, that is a hospital pass because my immediate reaction is that actually it is all about government. And I I, I hate to go back, but I feel like it's a it's a it's a national reset that we need. For example, recently um, they canceled the corporation tax rises that were planned. And I personally felt as a business owner, I wasn't. I wasn't dreading seeing those extra 1%, 2 3% uh, in a phased manner. I was quite sad that they actually de- deleted that. And I think now uh, lots of the things we're talking about could be helped with more government intervention personally, in my mind, and uh, input and money into interesting things. We're talking finally about having a sovereign wealth fund, essentially. We're talking finally about, and we could have been doing those things for years and years and years. And there's been lots of dodgy accounting about the bonds and where the money's gone to the Bank of England, all sorts of things. We sh- you know, as a go- I think personally, it starts with government, and we need to, uh, you know, and rethink that. I personally think the two-party systems is a bit broken or something. It, it needs a fix in my mind. So sorry, I've gone uh, back to government, but no, for me, that's, that's where it starts. No, that's
1: fine because that, that's you've always given me that understanding that um, you need not that, not that support, but you need that um,
6: uh, additional. You do. You do. But I mean, take for example our greenhouses. You could buy a gas boiler for. Forty thousand pounds burns the gas, gives you the carbon dioxide, the heat, the uh, lighting, the electricity for your lights if you have lights, or you could buy a two million pound heat pump. Okay, which we're going to commercially do. Oh well, that's nice and simple. So in that instance, and we've seen it with offshore wind, we've seen other things. The government help a, help an industry at the start. The cost per megawatt hour, cost per whatever it is. Any, and that my thing's energy, but everyone has their thing comes down over time as the government as that industry develops if you pull it away too soon it just sort of dies and fizzles why haven't we had any house insulation etc etc loads of issues that we haven't done because they haven't got it right really and i'd like to change the top yeah thank you dyson
1: dyson farms can we look to you to assist this sector
4: yeah i i I hope so i hope that we can play a leading role in what can be different but i think echoing the the point there i think Fundamentally, we need to aim to be a net exporter of food. That's what needs to happen in this country. And we need people like the British Growers and the AHDB to be championing that and the NFU to be championing that with government. And it probably is more niche than it is around commodities. We have to be realistic about where we can compete, but we do need to be a net exporter of food and the food security that that comes with that. There also does need to be an increase in investment uh, in technology for UK farming. And there's a 50 million pound fund. That's great. Should be 500 million. You know, if you're serious about it, let's, let's get after it. Let's properly get after it let's evaluate those things and let's have people coming forward with ideas that are transformational and let's lead again in some of that agricultural technology. And if in, in 50 years we're saying, well, a lot of it's been exported. Okay. That, that's fine, but we need to get after it cause it will have an impact on us. We do need a level playing field for UK farmers and, you know, deals like the, the Australian deal totally agree it, it's it. Uh, isn't good for agriculture but it is good for other sectors and we have to represent ourselves in a way that we're proud of um for our sector and then we have to build skills and where dyson farming comes in is that we will invest in people we we have our own team of agronomists we have our own team of plant scientists we also have our own team of engineers we we have those skills and we're fortunate to have those skills and there's many many growers that don't have those those skills within their business and we can play a part in sharing some of that resource and learning and collaborating but it, fundamentally the those objectives have to be in place that as a nation, we want to do something different with food, and I, I do think that starts with government and government policy. And what we have to do is be unified in pushing the government to to take that step and say that that's an objective for them too. That actually, it's not acceptable to be sitting at the level of food security we have, particularly when you look at the most nutritious products that we can possibly be growing, where we're around half self-sufficiency. And it's easy to say, oh yeah, but you know, tomatoes don't natively grow here. Yeah, but they they take a lot of carbon to import them from Spain and there's technology and infrastructure that can make that possible. So how, how do we do that and get off
1: those things? Uh, uh, I've got to um, come back to Dan's point about the 50 million pounds should be, should be 500 million pounds. Agri-Epi, you must be seeing this as well. And it comes back to what Nicholas uh, was saying that we need to upskill the whole farming, Horticulture and fresh produce sectors. Presumably, that's what you, you and your colleagues would completely endorse.
5: Absolutely, and and we talk about we're talking about government as if it's one entity in the UK, but actually we're seeing a real difference within the devolved nations. No. So actually, a lot of this money is coming through DEFRA, and that's um, for England only. Um, we've got a farm network across the UK that we're working with farmers to. Um, trial new technology on their farms to help farmers understand how that technology will help so that it will um, filter down throughout the food chain. But actually, if we're only getting funding from DEFRA to do that on UK farms, then how are we going to get that into the highlands of Scotland or onto a a Welsh um, sheep farm? Um, You know, it's really difficult for us to sort of work in that sector when the funding is um, not enough and potentially in the wrong place. But what we're trying to do is, is make that link between the government funding that we're coming in and bidding in competitively, the, um, the universities, so basically picking the best, best brains and going, OK, so you've got some fab ideas. Let's get you talking to a real farmer and a tech company. And we're building those consortia. And because we're not actually a commercial company in that realm, you know, selling the technology ourselves, we can bring those competitors together. And we've had success in the past where we've brought companies that normally wouldn't talk to each other in a technology development space because we're there as sort of a, a benign um, entity to sort of help bring keep those Chinese walls, but help with that particular piece of innovation that we've agreed on. We can sort of help facilitate those conversations and bring that through. But yes, we need more funding and it needs to be more joined up. And, you know, it's really difficult to say, look, you know, we know that there are all these problems and we can help you solve a lot of them. But actually, it's not going to be fast unless we can put the money in to bring bring it forward. And Dyson Farms are brilliant because they work with the universities. You work with the other companies as well. And we can sort of help sort of fit into that and the learnings that you make. And then we can then take those to the not the the top 10% of farmers we can bring those down and go okay yes. Yeah, so you're not a Dyson's farm size and whatever but these are the learns and we think we can we can help extrapolate that through to yourselves and we're trying to do that with our sort of farm network where we've got real commercial farms trialing products with real farmers who are not shy at telling those technology companies sometimes in quite blunt terms what they think of their technology if it doesn't work Um, but then um, they can help them develop that better Um, and then we'll get a product and that might be a really small market in the uk but then we have to look at how we can spin that internationally so that the uk farming can benefit from that technology because it'd be cheap enough because they're selling maybe rather than selling 10 units, just in the UK, they're selling a thousand units across the world. And then you've got the economies of scales and it becomes cheap enough to deploy on a small farm in Wales and not just a massive farm in Australia. Trish,
1: thank you. So Nicholas, have we got a bit of a, a confusion of thoughts here? We've got some people thinking that we don't need government support, we've got to go around and go direct to the market, and other people saying that we do need government support. Is the answer that um, if we can influence government, if we can go to government with the suggestions um, and the, the, the potential options as to what will work and what the cost ramifications will be and how we can take the, the load off them, that would be that would be beneficial?
7: So a view. Stop looking to government to bail out agriculture. Yeah? The traditional view is, that, is that agreed? Yes. Yes. The traditional view of screaming and shouting, saying we want more money, doesn't work. It won't work, right? Come to government with positive ideas, which are achievable and deliverable within the context of government, is really important. You can see that government's main focus at this moment in time, prior to Ukraine, was about landscape and about uh, flora and fauna and environment. That's that shifted a bit, but if you listen to Prime Minister, if you listen to coffee, it's still back on the agenda. So we need to get a balance in that, and, I, and I, I'm not pushing it either way. But the third thing, and, and really, I suppose, I, I hear all of this, but the third thing I say is, for goodness sake, let's get on and do our own thing. And And if I listen, for example, Sarah, you know, what you've done It's not about saying to government, I need lots and lots of money to be able to find food for poor people. What you've actually done is you've gone to the industry and said, I think there's an opportunity here. You've got food that's going out of shelf life. It costs you nothing. In fact, I can help you. I can take it from you and we collaborate together and we can do something. Now that is innovation in exactly the sort of way in which we as an industry have got to learn to collaborate. You know, we've got to say it's in our hands to do things not just look somewhere else the whole time and say we want money from somewhere to do it. Now I'm not against, I'm, I mean I'm all for pushing, I'm all for pushing but but I think that, that that really the time is now and if you look at the time scales within the next five to ten years British farming is going to be in serious problem And and I'm not talking about the progressives you know, I think Dan, you won't be, and I think some of the best terrible farmers won't be, and I think some of the livestock farmers who survive on fresh air won't be. But we will, as an industry, be in serious trouble unless we get together and really start making it happen. Exports is one example, but but it's also about animal health and welfare, it's also about reputation. I mean, you say you say to government, for example, pull up the pull up the door or whatever the right expression is, pull up the door against imports that are going to offshore our carbon problem because we're very good. Well, in part, we're very good. In part, I think we kid ourselves. And if you say, for example, on animal health and welfare, we are good, you look look and see what's happening around medicines. Now, pigs, we're good on medicine. On on cereals, we're beginning to move. i will be interested what the industry says about an e-passport. we're on, on dairying, I think we're good because it's big operators, but there are parts of British agriculture where unless we really do move forward in terms of reputation, we'll have nothing to defend. So I think we really need to collaborate in t- right. terms. and And
1: that collaboration element, Thomas, we did a very interesting broadcast with some of Nicholas's uh, colleagues from the AHDB with a number of uh, influencers, um, and it went very well, but off camera, um, I was asking them as to what their view of the trade groups were because I just assumed that they were all members of, a, of, of the trade groups and they weren't. They they felt that that was for their parents' generation, that they weren't representing them as individuals. I completely agree and concur. I'm sure you all do with uh, with, with Nicholas that we've got to get this message over to government and to uh, to, to, to the external consumer and, and to retailers. Um, Thomas, how can we get this message out? Is it via the trade groups or have we got to have a, a, a new beginning? Have we got a new sheet of paper are we starting something afresh?
8: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, having 10 voices speaking to government at the same time is much more going to be much more beneficial than having 10 individual meetings, because if you're all singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak, that's going to be, I think they're going to really listen because, you know, you might all go in and meet with government individually and say the same thing, but they might think, oh, you know, whatever, that's just their opinion. But if you're all saying the same thing at the same time, in one time, you know, you're going to really drive that key message. I think everyone wants to be the leader and the best, but actually I think if there's a bit more knowledge sharing, you know, for example, all the big agricultural universities have their university farms. They all do their own research and they like to keep their cards very close to their chest because then they say, oh, you know, we're the leading one for research and this and that. But actually I think if they're all working together a little bit more, then that's actually probably going to achieve more a little bit faster. And then, you know, you've got those grassroots individuals in the industry who are learning so much whilst they're at college or university, they can then take that home to parents, you know, employers who they're working for. And say, so, you know, if there's this idea that we're talking about at university, they're also talking about this at Essex in Newcastle in Reading and at Harper, and then everyone's going to pick it up all around the country and then they can come together. That way, and then make a united approach rather than all doing it individually and speaking quietly. Whereas, if you all come together, you can speak in a much louder, united voice.
1: Yeah, well said. And Jack, you'll know this more more than most because you represent 30 plus industry groups. Are we onto something here to get this collective voice that we can then present out our message to?
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, You know, collaboration is certainly the way forward. You know, we are just as individual businesses largely too small to have an impact. Uh, and working together and sharing problems and sharing solutions has got to be the way forward. Okay.
1: Andy, You again, I'm going to just pick on you as the, as the outsider. Do you think it would be beneficial for you as an organisation to uh, engage with a group, whether it be an existing trade group or, or some other voice, to get this message out, as well as your solo message?
6: Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I've never even contemplated it because everything... I feel like we all have to. It's that fighting independently spirit that we can't rely on government. We've got to, I've just got to focus commercially. What can I do? What can I achieve? What is economic? What actually makes business sense? What can I actually, you know, can I build this greenhouse here? Nope, because I've got to rely on gas. I've got to rely on all these expensive things. There's no government support. There's nothing. No, the climate's not right. Whatever. No labor, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't work. So, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's it's a tricky scenario where, um, yeah, everything has to be, everything has to stack up, and um, lots of things don't stack up at the moment for new developments and excitement. So I, 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 that's why I say, you know, government shape, you know, help shape industry, help create the businesses because businesses grow, drive the growth, drive the employment and help with the societal things. There's a seemingly mesh here. You're talking about, you know, that was a fascinating 27% to 11%, you know, food spend. Uh, over the last 50 years or whatever it was. And you think lots of these things are interma- intertwined. Okay,
1: thank you. So what, what everyone, what's the, what's the collective way we can make a substantial difference through this this platform that we've, we've created today? We've got all of you with your unique backgrounds and your unique businesses. We can see what the issues are, um, everything from from recruitment to margin pressure to energy inputs. Am I being naive here or is there something collectively that we can do? How can we make a, a, a substantial difference with what we have got here today, Jazz?
0: just want to go back to that point that Andy made, I think, you know, for us shouting and also screaming at government, we have to look at all the commercial angles. Um, and I see the government also looking at, you know, ultimately the government is a business. It is going to look which industry provides the most amount of money. When we look at financial services and the framework, billions and billions of pounds are invested into the banks. There's a reason why agriculture is we're importing so much because the margins are so tight. Who are the margins set by? set by certain supermarkets who are industry growers. And then those margin pressures are that much tighter on the actual growers. So it's really about who are we challenging? We should be challenging variations like the um, like the British supermarkets as well from where we're paying for. We know we've had, recently we had a certain customer groups that were looking to come into and the British supermarkets came up to us and said, we love the fact that it's locally grown. We love the fact that it's closer to the consumer and we can put the British flag right next to on on, on our fruits special I'm sure Dyson farming would agree with their strawberries but the British consumer wants to pay a certain amount and those pressures are directed back to the supermarket and say well we can't do that because we've done our market research and we can't sell it off the shelves then it leads back to food shortages so it's just like we all got our own pressures but we do need to also have a look and the government's going to look at the case of where it you know where where these fundamental issues are coming from so I think there's a, there's a real research that as a private organisation, all of us, we we'll, we'll probably need to put our heads together and say, where does it make commercial sense? And where can we focus? Maybe we can't tackle the whole agricultural sectors and the industries like they said, because agriculture is huge. It comes from livestock and fresh produce, but maybe we can focus on areas that we know that can work and can provide British agriculture as to be profitability. And we work on those areas and, and, and accept the areas that we can't bring our costs down and part of commercial hat on.
1: Jazz, thank you. Sarah, how can we can make a collective difference?
2: Um, I've always been a firm, um, believer in the in the one voice, the the single, you know, we have the same phrase and we speak together. Um we have to look at the, the, the broader, you know, this being a good country to do business in and business with so that we have overseas development, you know, that, that being net exporters, you know, having that trade balance because it's the, we need the economic growth now, don't we? We need the GDP, we need businesses to be thriving because, the, you know, where we start looking at our reset is um, you know, cost of living income hasn't changed. We haven't had a, um, a steady growth. You took all the stats here. what it took to grow a house, uh, to buy a house when my parents got married 55 years ago, compared to the prospects of my child ever being able to afford a house, because incomes haven't risen commensurate with the cost of living. So we need that economic change and we will never play, you know, never catch up now, but it's that it's that economic growth that will start levelling out the income versus cost of living.
1: So thank you. Trish, how can we make, make this collective difference?
5: I think we, we need to get together as as industry, like Jazz said, and really think about where are the hotspots that we can actually make a difference now and where can we do that going forward? So, so actually get our really, really bright brains together and go, do you know what? Um, we aren't going to wait for somebody else to solve our problem. We can do this now. So we know that there's this issue now. We can make a difference on that. We can commit to doing that. So... So we can continue these conversations and they're all really some very diverse views, but actually we're all we're all wanting the same thing and we're all wanting that movement. So it's we can continue those conversations and we can try and find those solutions ourselves and not wait for somebody else to find them for us.
1: Trish, thank you. Dan, how can we make that collective? Substantial.
4: It, 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 it up a little bit on what what Jazz said too, I, I think it, it is absolutely about looking at each sector of the industry and looking at how we can be a net exporter. That's the fundamental, mm. how do you break down some of that broken element of those tight margins? You need more opportunities. You need a bigger marketplace where we started off. If you've got a bigger marketplace for your goods and you're never going to have that in every agricultural sector, but being really focused about where do we have technology, growing conditions, varieties, what makes us special and how do we absolutely take that to a global market? That's what starts to break down some of the dysfunction that's in our Retail supply chains in the UK. It's what has the potential to give you an option, uh, so that you can sell it in France and get more money than than you're getting. And it, it, it's you know it, it's easy to say uh, that it's pie in the sky. The Netherlands, are the second biggest mm-hmm. exporter of food in the world, the second <laughs> biggest in the world, yep, after the US. And why do they have the best technology? Because they've built an economy around food and agriculture. We can be an economic powerhouse for this country. And it's just focusing on a very straightforward, singular goal of we need to get into a place where we are a net exporter of food. And if if we can focus on that and we can collaborate and work together on identifying those markets and sectors, I really believe that we can
3: make a, a very significant step forward. Jack. Um, I think as a food industry, that's growers, processors, retailers, we have a common goal and that's affordable food, but it's got to be sustainable. And it's got to be sustainable environmentally, it's got to be sustainable economically. And I think collectively we've got to work out what that actually looks like in practice. And then we've got to ask government to put in place a policy that supports that outcome And the last thing I would suggest is, sometimes we just need to remove some of the adversarial elements in our food industry. You know, you do get the impression that bits of the industry are locked in battle against each other. And I think in terms of delivering what everybody wants, affordable, sustainable um, food supplies, that isn't helpful.
1: Nicholas, wrap up for us.
7: (coughs) Gosh, (laughs) can can, can I just go back for a second? Let's not underestimate what we're doing On, on red meat and pork. We're exporting 1.8 billion. Yeah, um, the, the the success of our beef, lamb, and uh, uh, and pork industry is totally dependent on the export of fifth quarter, and on finding niche markets. And we do quite well with the provenance, which allows us to make premium. So I think I think there are examples where we do actually export well. Um, I think there are other areas where we will never export i mean not i mean we'll, we'll export surplus cereal you know in a in a heavy crop yeah but but that's not our game right so i i think the export plays a really important role i'm I'm, not, I'm an exporter by nature so i really do believe that but but what i would like to suggest is that while while we're bashing away at government in terms of all the things you said which i understand i agree with i i pick up some of the comments made around the table about, about trying to learn to be collaborative, which Britain's not good at, by the way, being collaborative in pre-market issues. And and I think we should pick up, we should all pick up the, as I said at the beginning, the the, the small bit in the white paper that says what work centers, and we should say, let's support a trial in one area of agriculture, right? Where we can, we can get <laughs> together around the table with a ring holder, and we can say, look, pre-competitive, what can we share? What can we move forward? Let's do it as a trial to see if this is an opportunity which could then be spread across the rest of of agriculture. Um, And and I think that, that, I mean, you know, actually I think that you've got a fantastic opportunity now, Jack, now that you're picking up the mantle on horticulture. I mean, I would love to see us having a New Zealand style um, horticultural development board. Fantastic opportunity. but, but I think, I think that, that it all depends on whether we're going to be able to change our culture. So don't, don't look at the whole of agriculture. Don't try and do it right across everything. It's too big a problem. Right? Choose something, come together around something, have a ring holder and say, let's talk about technology. Let's talk about the Agritech centers. Let's talk about the university farms. I mean, it's crazy. There are not only university farms, there's leaf farms, there's HDB farms. We're all doing our own thing when we could actually be doing things quite interestingly together, recognising the competition.
1: Yeah. Nicholas, thank you. Thomas, are you positive about the future?
8: As a whole, yes. I think it is really exciting. I think we are only going to improve. You know, I think in the past it's very much been, or oh, this is how we did it last year. And I think now, especially, you know, post-Brexit and also post-pandemic, we're able, we've had that break for those couple of years or we can sort of rip up the rule book and change things and, you know, and design things the way that we want them to, and and shape the future the way that we want it to be. Jazz.
0: Yeah, I think think technology does play a huge part. And I think um, pretty much what Nick said earlier is that if we can all get together and pick up one or two things that we know that we can really thrive on, I think we've got a great future ahead.
6: Andy. Yes, but it's hard. It feels hard to me to do interesting, exciting, innovative, things in the UK, that's my personal take on it. One to watch. Dan.
4: Uh, Yes, I think it is exciting. I think it's a great privilege to feed people and it's uh, a fundamental part of society and what we do. And I think it's something that you have to always be looking to the future on and looking at what we can do differently and what a difference it makes. So I think you've always got to be positive and excited about what's ahead. Trish.
5: I think um, it is the most challenging time and yet the most exciting time to be in agriculture and agri-tech because this
2: crisis is making us change. Sarah? Yes, positive for the future on farming, positive. We've got a really tough few years ahead of us, but yes, we're travelling in a better direction.
3: Jack? Yeah, I think never underestimate the desire among farmers to succeed. 20 years ago, I sat through, I worked through foot and mouth. We came back after foot and mouth. We will come back after this. Nicholas?
7: It's been said. I think. I think that we we all have a passion for the industry. Um, I hope that we can persuade Andy that investing and getting things happening in the UK is possible.
1: Yeah, everyone. I'd like to thank you very much for attending and participating in our first circle of leaders with Beanstalk Global. I think it's been. A fascinating conversation. What will be very interesting is to get the feedback from everyone that dials in onto this uh, this broadcast and see what conversation that we can stimulate off the back of this. If you would like to have any form of contact with the um, individuals that we've had on today, they've all got amazing backgrounds and amazing businesses. And this whole word that I want to major on of collaboration. I think the more that we can collaborate, the more success success that we can uh, create individually and as a, as a as a group within the UK and also internationally, because we are a community that works uh, globally. I just want to thank again our partners: Innovation AgriTech Group, Jazz, AgriEpi, Trish, uh, HDB, Nicholas Sapphire, and your colleagues that are with us today: MDS, Red Fox Executive Selection, Blue Skies, Garden AgriTech. Maynard House, and it goes without saying, uh, class. Would anyone like to take a class combine home with them today? If we can sneak one sneak one out, Trish, a little tractor. You wanna go for a spin? Okay, we're gonna go for a spin. <laughs> we'll hover to the class Lexington and see where we go down the A14, onto down, down to Mason Kent. Thank you very much everyone for attending the Circle of Leaders broadcast.